Hi everyone, welcome to Crime Science. In this podcast, we aim to explore the science of crime and the practical application of the science for loss prevention and asset protection practitioners as well as other professionals. We would like to thank Bosch for making this episode possible. Use Bosch Camera's onboard intelligent video analytics to quickly locate important recorded incidents or events. Bosch's forensic search saves you time and money by searching through hours or days of video within minutes to find and collect video evidence. Learn more about intelligent video analytics from Bosch in Zones 1-4 through of LPRC's Zones of Influence by visiting Bosch online at BoschSecurity.com. Welcome everyone to another episode of Crime Science, the podcast, our weekly episodes uh, where we're touching base with uh, some very knowledgeable people to update uh, the LPRC membership and the world at large uh, around uh, what's going on in asset protection, loss prevention in particular, but with the influence, of course, of the COVID-19 pandemic, um, as well as sporadic but widespread um, and periodic um, looting or other threats to the retailer uh, and their customers and their employees um, in ways that we might better understand and affect uh, for the good. So we'll go ahead and talk a little bit about, of course, uh, COVID-19, what's going on there uh, as we race into the fall of 2020. Um, You know, the idea, the concern even that not only will we have COVID-19, but uh, we'll have one or more uh, widespread influenza strains. It will be interesting. My understanding is that Australia, which is sort of a sentinel because of the way the season works in the southern versus northern hemisphere, uh, they've had a, a relatively mild flu season, if you will. Of course, uh, sheltering in place, reducing the spread of COVID uh, evidently does the same as one would expect for uh, influenza strains. Um but uh, despite that, there are trivalent and quadrivalent uh, flu vaccines available. And with a lot of recommendation around that, uh, simultaneous with that or separate, uh, but separate, uh, is some of some new research findings, rigorous, peer-reviewed, that the influenza vaccine, as well as several others, tend to look to be somewhat neuroprotective. In other words, might protect uh, those of us that receive these vaccines from uh, different uh, brain issues, including, though, different forms of dementia. So um, that could be a good, uh, another good reason to consider vaccination of yourselves and loved ones from the different uh, viruses that abound, uh, as well as some of the newer um, antibacterial um, vaccines that are out there. They may have neuroprotective uh, components to them or effects which is actually pretty exciting. Um, again, part of the, the concern out there before was just getting testing done to understand who has COVID-19 and who doesn't, um, where is it going next, who might be uh, near somebody that's infected that is infectious uh, and so on. And so remember that's part of what's going on is trying to understand the difference between a person that's infected and then when they're infectious or there's some infectivity. And so that's a big part of the science that's happening. uh, And that's a lot that's going into testing, understanding while someone may be infected with the virus that causes COVID-19, the the virus being of course SARS-CoV-2, now they've got it, there's some RNA, there's maybe even replication or not, but is that individual shedding that virus? Are they viremic or infectious? So. Um, and, and trying to understand how that happens. Super spreaders uh, have been something that emerged uh, through this pandemic. Uh, a lot of research going into understanding that, that, you know, why do some people have these incredibly heavy loads of virus they've onboarded, um, but they are not uh, projecting any clinical symptoms, um, but they are infectious. And so, you know, we've seen at choir practices, at family reunions, at weddings, at funerals and other events where people were clustered together, nobody appeared to be visibly sick, maybe in any way, shape or form, but yet uh, several dozens or almost everybody is infected at that event because that super shutter is uh, heavily dosing the area. They're hosing the area down with, uh, with virus. So. Uh, more to come on that and trying to understand some of the exciting things. Again, now there are several coming out or already licensed or approved anyway by the FDA uh, tests that um, take just a little over 30 minutes uh, for turnaround time. Um, 
and so uh, they're they're trying to understand too the best way to you know if we've got a saliva or we've got different types of testing of course the nasal and even uh, higher up in that passageway they're going to find maybe more viral load the test is more uh, likely to be a, a for real positive, not a false positive, uh, or preclude a false negative because you didn't get enough uh, viral activity that you picked up on. The other, some other exciting things that now there are four-way type uh, test panels, at least at that point of care, as they call it in the hospital, or sometimes in the uh, physician's offices, it's going to be readily available, hopefully soon, that would test simultaneously for somebody that's symptomatic, seems like they're sick, uh, to determine is it a one type, A type flu or a B type flu? Is it COVID-19? Is it RSV, another somewhat common uh, respiratory uh, virus that's particularly uh, serious for very young and very old? So uh, you can imagine now if that physician is able to get a a 36-minute response and understand that this person who's now masked up or has been masked up, what, what in the world they've got. Um, and not make false diagnoses. It's also going to help with understanding the spread of any and all the viruses that we've got. Um, we always talk about on this podcast the some of the updates, not only on testing, of course, but on therapies, and then of course on vaccines. Um, the therapies, um, the they continue. We know that there are several different programs underway, but CTAP is the U.S. government FDA's program, uh, which is designed, of course, to move therapies along quickly treatments and it's the corona treatment acceleration program ctap um, as of uh, august now we've got uh, over 570 um, in approved testing stages we've got uh, two another 270 that are uh, some initial trials look um, like it's a safe protocol or excuse me a safe therapy now it's going into actual trials so these have been reviewed by the FDA, over 270 registered trials on with therapies, um, two treatments we know that are approved. Um, so um, that's the, the front there. Um, some of the therapies that are kind of interesting out there, uh, there's one that's uh, anticlonal uh, antibody test. Um, it's in a phase three in some parts of the world, phase two, three in other parts of the world, um, but it looks uh, very positive. And we've talked about some of these therapies um, like vaccines are designed to affect the virus or the cells that have been infected um, or the other parts of the immune system. Um, And we know that there are these B cells and T cells and different antibodies and so on that are in a part of our innate and um, adaptive immune system. So uh, these things, some of these are looking pretty exciting. Um, We anxiously await the results of those as we move through all the testing there. Um, On the vaccine front, um, continually making movement there also, um, where uh, a couple more have moved in, I understand, into phase three trials. We've now got seven vaccines in large-scale efficacy tests um, or trials. Many of these trials are taking place in countries or areas that are total hotspots since we really need to have those that are dosed with the actual uh, agent versus those are, that are not, that are probably got some sort of saline or other placebo to see how effective they are at either um, precluding infection or um, probably even more likely, though, that it's a very, very mild infection um, if you even get it. So we've got 139 right now. It looks like they're preclinical research Uh, 25 vaccines in phase one, 15 in phase two, and again, seven in phase three. So um, a lot, a lot going on right now. And just trying to understand uh, a little bit about the virus. There's now been some of the, even though there's certainly not a postmortem here, but trying to understand the dynamics of the spread um, in China, throughout China, and how it moved around the the different parts of the world. In the United States, um, we know that this is somewhat politically charged as well, but uh, I think the scientists, the physician scientists that are taking a look at this are talking about, well, why did it spread and spread so rapidly? We know that it's a virus that's very highly transmissible, of course. Uh, It has uneven effects, but we also know that you know, the, again, there are these super spreaders and others that are out there moving around. And so part of, though, the pub, the response by the uh, CDC 
Um, and at the state and county level, the county level is uh, traditionally where public health happens. That's where you go. Your county health department is trying to keep everybody healthy and respond to uh, outbreaks um, and so on. Uh, and so it's understood right now, it looks like the CDC at all, the normal model is, well, whatever we do here, and we've got a couple vaccines, some new testing, some things we want to start looking at, but we can start getting tests out pretty quickly to the public health uh, centers, particularly and mostly at the county level. That turned out to be a huge problem because, um, first of all, we know some of the reagents that they had, uh, some of those didn't function at first. They quickly remedied that. Uh, but the problem was the public health departments were completely and totally swamped um, because of the very high trans transmissibility of the, of the disease. So um, the other part of this is that the private reference labs that are the big labs that can handle a lot, that can handle huge surges um, pretty quickly, had developed their test kits themselves. They were ready to go into action, but the normal regulations – were in place and the regulatory hurdles for them compared to a public health who says, hey, I can come up with my own test. I can do it fairly quickly and start administering it. Uh, they they could do those things, but they couldn't handle the crowd. Um, the private reference labs could, but they couldn't get in the game. And it took a long time. It took weeks and weeks and a couple months to let them into the game. Once that happened, now you started seeing huge ramp ups uh, in the testing. And then now some of the, you know, the now these 36 minute tests and things like that. The other problem the United States evidently had was this almost simultaneous east and west spread. It, it looked like it was coming in. People had traveled from China into Seattle, and it was going exponentially from there. But at the same time, people were coming in from China or other areas that had been infected, like Italy, uh, into the east coast, and it was spreading. So you had this uh, massive uh, simultaneous introduction of the virus um, in the United States that spread very rapidly, and you're now fighting a two-front war um, that's now coming internally. Flights are coming in. I think the administration suspended uh, flights from China in late January, um, uh, but that was by that time uh, too late. So, um, and again, it, uh, the fourth component they identify as to why the response wasn't adequate uh, was just the asymptomatic spread, the super spreaders that were not anticipated and weren't really evidently known by most virologists or a lot of the infectious disease physicians, so epidemiologists. So that's kind of a look back at um, what happened in the United States in the face of that, uh, of COVID-19. I know now switching gears over to um, what we're looking at, we've seen in Kenosha, Wisconsin, um, a flare-up um, where uh, I guess an individual was being arrested and um, uh, law enforcement officers, one of them evidently shot him, a, a black male subject, um, an African-American. Uh, he was hit in the back. Um, I, I understand investigations, of course, are ongoing at the local, state, and federal level to understand. But in the meantime, um, again, what started out as peaceful demonstrations uh, evidently very rapidly ex escalated. So there's been widespread looting and burning um, and assaults taking place there. Um, with citizens trying to protect their businesses or others uh, and so on. So uh, we'll stay tuned, but uh, as at LPRC, we're standing by and talking to retailers that are operating there. Um, again, like in most of these um, riots that have gotten out of hand, uh, the local the local business owners have been taking the, the brunt of the burning and looting. Um, and so we know that that's a, a terrible side effect there. Um, looking at crime and COVID, we're going to do an update uh, at LPRC. You're going to see one uh, thing that we're going to do is uh, we're having three um, cluster calls for the LPRC solution partners. We'll replicate these for the retailers coming up. Um, but we're the first one we held was on LPRC Innovate, how Innovate works, um, how we do innovate uh, innovation and option testing how we can leverage the virtual reality platform uh, and then the different technology we have to visualize places without everybody having to go there, but do some pretty good testing. Um, and so we had, uh, I think over 36 technology companies rung in and were able to engage with our team on understanding LPRC Innovate, the four research and development clusters that are going on there um, with connect, connected community, connected place or store, um, smart transactions and safe and secure experience. Um, and then uh, of course, discussing AI solve, you know, the AI leveraging to support those four initiatives. And 
Um, they also got brief sheets sent to them. Uh, we've got about 78 technology companies that are members at the LPRC. So we want to do everything we can to support them. Uh, another thing we've done with them is um, that's coming up where we want to discover, we want to discuss crime and COVID, um, understand the routine activity approach uh, from Felsen and his work. And we heavily leverage that. Uh, but understanding how um, COVID uh, dramatically reduced the amount of uh, street and commercial tar- crime targets for offenders um, and reducing dramatically reducing those targets. At the same time, we reduce some of the protection like um, place guardianship and, and uh, passerby guardianship uh, and, of course, law enforcement guardianship. But um, just the fact that the target selection was so uh, was stripped pretty bare uh, seemed to account for the dramatic reduction in property crime across the United States, um, even though now we're seeing property crime reapproach the same uh, pre-COVID levels, uh, while violence, particularly homicide in certain cities we've seen, have almost gone to unprecedented levels um, now as targets are much more readily available, both commercial and personal targets. So looking at that, those dynamics. So we're calling it pandemic panorama. Uh, Dr. Corey Lowe, uh, LPRC research scientist, will be uh, working with our solution part members on that uh, that call called pan- pandemic panorama. Uh, we'll then later have an impact planning call uh, by uh, Kenna, uh, who is our uh, research team leader here, um, and her and Jesse Dudley and Kevin Tran will be discussing impact, how solution partners can get involved, should get involved, what they can do to, to uh, engage and support uh, LPRC, but engage and, and work with their the other members, particularly retailers. Um, other LPRC news, um, we're full on with working with the University of Florida students on their senior projects again. Um, we've got UXD or User Experience Design, which is human-centered computing. They're computer science uh, students who are amazing. Um, and uh, we they work on one of the clusters. They'll divide into teams and work on connected place, work on connected community, smart transaction, and so on. Smart transaction can be curbside in-store, mobile, uh, other self-checkout or standard. Um, And uh, so they will break down and come back with really innovative uh, solutions and ideas that they've done, put together by doing some research. The same thing with ISC, industrial and systems engineering. Those students, they look at things differently than the computer science students, which is exciting and rich for us. Um, And then finally, the Innovation Academy students, where you can get a minor in innovation at UF across over 32 majors. And so they have these interdisciplinary teams that also work on the same problem. So we get a lot of perspective from the students and their faculty across that. Looking forward to the now to the LPRC Knowledge Center, we're continually uploading the working group calls, the results of those calls um, as well. Um, we don't record our working group calls uh, to maintain confidentiality for every participant in there so they can uh, participate, engage, and share uh, and ask questions or answer them freely with each other. But the call notes are in there about the findings and the projects that they are working on. Um, for uh, members, if you get in the Knowledge Center, we continue to upload video clips of uh, interviewed offenders, uh, more reports from us and research reports from others around the world. Um, the landing pages at uh, lpresearch.org also are being updated by Kevin and team. Um, so a lot going on as we prepare for impact that first week in October. We're excited. Two-day program. Um, we'll do a special uh, crime science episode talking about and uh, going through that with Kenna um, and Kevin and uh, discuss what that looks like and how anybody can get engaged. We've got over 400 participants already registered, which is a record um, number. We normally have 400 in-person, so it's going to be interesting to see how many we get over the next weeks and weeks um, registered for this two-day virtual event. So that's a little bit about what's what we think's going on and what we're trying to do about it to support um, the green shopper, the green employee, the person that we want to spend time there um, and so with uh, no further ado, if I might, let me go over to my uh, colleague and friend, Tony D'Onofrio. Uh, Tony, over to you. Thank you very much, Reed. Uh, it's really my great pleasure to introduce our special guest for today. Uh, Peter Trapp is a technology executive investor and advisor and thought leader. He's currently the CEO of Face First, a recognized leader in the facial recognition 
market that provides AI-enabled identity solutions. Peter has nearly one billion in exits in his career, having helped numerous software companies achieve successful exits as co-founder, executive, and board member. Peter's taught leadership on AI, technology, and matters of privacy have appeared in the Wall Street Journal, CNBC, New York Times, Forbes, and elsewhere. He's working with senators on Capitol Hill to craft upcoming facial recognition legislation and works closely with numerous Fortune 100 companies to develop corporate private policies. Peter is widely regarded as an expert on privacy and is the author of the book, The New Rules of Consumer Privacy. So Peter, welcome. Tony, thank you very much for that, uh, that kind introduction. I appreciate that. Um, delighted to be here and, and really appreciate the invitation. Um, you know, I wanted to speak for a few minutes about privacy and about um, this topic that uh, is so personal and so meaningful to, to all of us. And I know 2020 is filled with lots and lots of big issues. Uh, you know, Reed, uh, Reed just uh, very nicely covered uh, one of them there, but, um, you know, th there are a lot of big issues and, and uh, privacy is, is, uh, is on that list, I think. And I think it's going to continue to be for for some time here. Um, and, and the reason is um, it has a lot to do with a pretty major shift uh, in, in digital transformation that's going on right now. And um, so if you think for a moment about what your own expectation for privacy is, um, you know, uh, it's a really interesting question to think about. And um, what I've learned is uh, all of us have uh, oftentimes very different expectations for privacy. Um, and and uh, if you ask people, hey, is, you know, is privacy protected under the law? Um, uh, I think most people think it is. And, and uh, question, questions rise about, well, what law exactly? Um, there are local laws, there are state laws, there are federal laws and, and, and ones being considered right now. Uh, Illinois, as, as some of you may be aware, uh, has one of the, uh, the most stringent uh, laws out there on the books, a BIPA, uh, that's been uh, famously tested here, here uh, lately. Um, but there is no law of the land today. And uh, there, there, uh, there are a lot of questions about it and a lot of people working on it. Um, but again, because people have different expectations, it's going to take some time before we really zero in on what you know, what the uh, uh, what what the laws ought to look like and what they ought to do, um, and uh, two very high-level ways to think about that is, um, is is it enough for me to get uh, a notification uh, that somebody is collecting information about me? Um, maybe in certain circumstances, maybe not. Um, is it better, or should it be required? Uh, that uh, uh, I be notified when and if somebody is collecting information on me. So those are the kinds of things that are right at the core of, uh, of this discussion. And, and because we're on this threshold of, of digital transformation, and it's going to be you know, very much fueled by AI that we've sort of been talking about, but, but are just beginning to see some of the results, everything we do at home, at work, when we go shopping or go into a bank or whatever we decide to do, is, is going to be increasingly uh, uh, governed and, and, uh, and we're, going, we're going to see a digital interface, um, a, a way for um, businesses to know who we are better, um, to present our identity uh, in a more secure way. Um, and, uh, and, we, we, and we can see elements of this when we look at our online experiences. Right. So you think about logging into uh, Amazon or an online shopping uh, experience and you think about all the information uh, they have about you. Right. They, they, right from the beginning, they know who you are. They know what your shopping history is. They know your gender. They know your zip code. They, they know, there's lots of information they know about you. But today, by and large, you walk into a brick and mortar store uh, and they don't know that you're even there. Um, and and uh, that's not the experience that uh, is, is possible, and it's not the experience that I believe most retailers want. 
Um, what does that look like? How do we do that so it doesn't feel creepy, um, but provides a benefit? Right? We've seen Hollywood movies, uh, the, the, you know, Blade Runner and, and uh, you know, these futuristic films <clears throat> that predict what that might look like. Uh, and, and you're going to get varying degrees of, uh, uh, of agreement on, on uh, whether that's right or not. Um, but you could imagine. Uh, and I think it's going to be a slow uh, transition in some ways. But this year, things are speeding up pretty rapidly as well. Um, and so everything from an Alexa device in your home uh, to logging into work to uh, even if you work from home. Um, to these, these shopping experiences, even if you're picking up at a curbside, those things are all going to go through a pretty major shift with this transformation into uh, a, a, a digital relationship with, with our businesses. And so there are two ways to kind of think about this world, because it's not only just about the shopping, uh, it's, it's also about security. And security is a very important thing. We've, seen, we've started to see, to see some of the crime numbers, uh, um, but we haven't seen them all yet. And they are certainly increasing. And uh, um, uh, some of the biometric and digital solutions are very effective at helping to reduce organized retail crime and, uh, and violent crime and mitigate fraud and some of these things. Very, very effective tools and great arguments for, for having those. But some of the laws and the lawmakers uh, are uh, you know, targeting some of those tools because uh, they, they, uh, you know, these are use cases where people are not opting in. And uh, so we're going to have to, you know, we're, we're going to visit this issue and revisit this issue uh, uh, for, for months to come. But many of the other use cases where uh, we have opted in and maybe there's an app involved and, and maybe there's a personalized menu and, and you walk into uh, a store and they now know you, that, that is going to be an opt-in experience. And that really is not the target of these laws. We already opt into all kinds of, of use cases. So what's next? Uh, uh, we're seeing uh, um, you know, Clearview AI out there is getting a lot of press these days. Uh, they've hired a gentleman named Floyd Abrams who is a, a First Amendment, very, very prominent First Amendment attorney, who is bringing these privacy uh, arguments to the First Amendment uh, uh, side of the, uh, uh, of the debate. And um, we'll have to see how that plays out. It, it's a very interesting way to think about it, for sure. Um, uh, Congress and um, some pretty high-profile senators are proposing some legislation right now to talk about uh, um, uh, privacy and how facial recognition and other biometric tools are going to get used. Um, their initial uh, introduction was pretty radical, but uh, uh, you know, that might get watered down a little bit, and we'll probably see that come back around. Um, at the end of the day, I think, uh, and just in conclusion, I think success comes when everybody is involved and knowledgeable. So that's users, that's businesses, and that's legislators. The technology is always going to lead legislation. Legislation follows the technology. So you're going to see cutting edge ideas and solutions. But uh, uh, when everyone understands what's going on and has a, and has a word, uh, you know, hand in that, we're going to see the most effective uh, um, deployment of this technology. I will leave it there. Um, again, thank you very, very much for uh, inviting me here today. I'm going to hand it now over to, uh, uh, to Tom and um, appreciate your time. Uh, thank you, Peter. Uh, always interesting to listen to you talk and uh, read the book, and I recommend uh, everybody going out and grabbing a copy. So I'm going to go into uh, kind of just a, a quick overview of some of the things that are going on. One thing, and I, I am intentionally repetitive here, is just a reminder that although um, it isn't consistent throughout the United States, kids are going back to school uh, either remotely or in a hybrid fashion, and uh, you have, unfortunately, uh, a group of folks that are targeting children uh, to get into accounts and compromise data as well as some other nefarious actions. So it's a good reminder to just uh, in, enhance your, your cybersecurity habits, have conversations with your children about sharing uh, personal information, uh, making sure that they're not uh, sharing passwords, pictures. Uh, there, there's actually some really uh, scary statistics of attacks directed at schools and children right now. Uh, there was an, a warning issued last week again by the FBI, uh, really talking about the risk for business businesses because 
um, your entry point on an, on your home network or computer could be your child. So for instance, kind of which in some cases isn't that easy, your work computer should not be used as your child's school computer. And if you try to keep those two segregated, that's kind of a big, big one to work through. So one thing I want to talk about, and, and Peter touched on this, and I know, I know Reed did, and I know that uh, Tony will as well, is uh, digital risk protection and you know, what it means for asset protection professionals. And I think when you hear digital risk, you think cyber right away, you think of, of those things. But digital risk protection is not just about cyber, it's about how you protect yourself as a retailer um, or a consumer through in, in this enhanced digital transformation. So uh, retailers are increasing their digital footprint more today than they have been in the past and COVID's accelerated this. So that actually widens the landscape of attack. And this isn't your typical cyber attack. This is um, digital risk protection is very tactical in nature, making sure that you know your access to your actual hardware and your locations is secured and then monitoring after the front. Um, the threat landscape, is really any digital device or digital footprint or data that you have. So as asset protection professionals listening, I think in the next, you know, six to eight months, you're going to see that line blurred dramatically and you we should start to see things uh, around digital risk protection. Certainly uh, with the civil unrest, we're, we're doing a lot more uh, in the social media listening and open source intelligence gathering. And that's actually kind of the, the first forefront into digital risk protection. Uh, digital risk protection is just about, uh, just as much about the company's brand and image as it is of the actual uh, intellectual or, uh, property or asset. So uh, I encourage you to start uh, looking at some research. Uh, I, you know, I did a couple um, virtual conferences recordings over the last two weeks and uh, digital risk protection was a huge topic and it was really centered around taking your uh, open source intelligence gathering program to the next level to around, around brand. I think it's important to, to note that with all of the events that are going on globally, when you take into consideration COVID-19 and then you take in civil unrest and you take in an election, um, you have to really be vigilant to not forget to really make sure everything is buttoned up and digital risk protection is uh, while we're distracted is when hackers come in and, and really run through. Microsoft uh, you know, released kind of a, a very interesting document around the pandemic and it changed, how it's changing the future of cyber uh, security. I talk a lot about the zero trust environment. And I, I think I mentioned it often on uh, this uh, podcast, probably even every time we do a podcast, but want to make sure I clarify, you know, a little bit. So, you know, zero trust is uh, cybersecurity focused on resource protection and the premise that uh, never, never to grant, you know, implicit access. So it's kind of this, ecosystem where you're saying test everything, double check everything and continue evaluate it. I think retail uh, was a little bit farther ahead of the curve because of the breach um, implications that retailers had pre-COVID. But I think in general, everybody has to be in the zero trust journey or uh, transitioning to a zero trust environment because we are in a position where our digital resources are remote and mobile, and they were before, and I would argue that they were really moving that way, but not to the level of what it is. So today, it's you have to start with the, the assumption that there's going to be a challenge, uh, not just granting access, and then continuously evaluating it. So I thought it was important to really talk through that because I, I constantly – uh, talk about zero trust, but never really went into that. In light of um, the growth of remote work, you know, more than half of the business leaders um, are speeding up their deployment of the zero trust capabilities. That's according to Microsoft. And then uh, 94% of the studies that, uh, or the corporations they talked about in this study reported that the process of deploying zero trust capabilities is rapidly accelerated. And really, that's everything from physical hardware to software down to policy. Um, I, I know just based on what I do day to day that that is happening rapidly in retail as retailers open up. But again, it, it, it's reminded that you couldn't take more things going on today globally to distract you and you add the weather elements of the season and it really becomes challenging Cybersecurity, you know is more important uh during covid19 than it has ever been mit uh, did a report in the mst business school really addressing 
you know, to, to continuously, and we talk about this on the podcast all of the times, look out for cyber-related scams. Look for, you know, those emails that are trying to steal information. Um, hackers are really becoming uh, a little bit more creative. I know early on in the podcast, we, we reported very early on some of the COVID maps being infected with malicious code, and then you had um, a lot of attempts at uh, ransomware attacks around COVID-19. So it's just, it continues to be a challenge. And there are two really, really nasty ransomware. Um, and it's actually three, but two major ones that are going on right now. Um, and uh, for those of you that don't recall, ransomware is when someone sends you something or you inadvertently download something and you execute code that actually encrypts your files so that you can't access them and then ha- hackers or a bad actor comes to you and, and wants to be paid to un- unload those files or to give them back to you and i know we talked about some of this but it's it's continuously rising and now with covid there's a lot around covid and then work for home work from home vulnerabilities continue to be a challenge. Um, I don't know if anybody caught the news about video conferencing and there was a school where a teacher saw a gun in the background. We talked about privacy and they rightfully reported it. You know, I, I believe that, you know, there was a child, uh, it was not a, it was a BB gun. Of course it, it, it went into other things, but it just, it serves as a reminder of that when you're at home and you are, you know, using video conferencing, you just have to take, uh, you know, the extra special step to understand what is on that video and what's the implications um, it may have. It doesn't really matter where you stand on on what the issues are today. It's that you are you are exposing yourself to a vulnerability uh, when you're when you are using other video conference softwares. And it's I think everybody thinks of the traditional vulnerability, but you know I read a a news brief. Um, out of Miami where someone was doing a video conference at work and they had a large sum of money out and then they were robbed the next day. And when they caught the person, it was a coworker. I mean, there are a lot of simple things that you don't think about when it's related to implications of working from home, but it's really taking that extra special step. And what I would say is if you had someone in your living room, um, if you're comfortable with them sitting next to you, you're probably going to be comfortable with them on video where uh, it runs through. And then something that consistently comes up and is not going to Way is fake products. You know, several well, uh, uh, websites selling masks. Some not actually delivering it. Some delivering uh, masks that aren't there. Um, so just doing your due diligence or where you run through and making sure that you're 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 taking that extra special step before you place an order. And this applies to big business and personal sales. The big businesses are not exempt from this because when there's a need for something, um, these folks take a really good um, amount of time to make sure that what the websites and their selling process looks legitimate. And then, you know, I, I already talked a lot about remote workforce. I think there's, it just serves as a reminder to, to remind your children and just take yourself um, that extra special step for yourself uh, as well. And then I want to round out just um, because I, I got a lot of phone calls last week about social media monitoring and um, someone had actually sent me um, a couple different videos, but there is um, a rash of social media chatter today around um, shoplifting policy in store, hands off, hands on, and, and how to get around shoplifting. Um, and this is that uh, could be organized retail crime element, but really these posts seem to be individual actors just looking at them, really talking about the store's policies, the police policy in the jurisdiction, as well as mask compliant and which way to wear the mask to to have the least identifiable features. So um, as you as you continue to monitor for social media and open source intelligence for all the things out there, I think today, um, and I think there was 154 different occurrences last week where there were people, last 10 days, sorry, speaking about specifics around policy in store and even taking pictures of what types of cameras they used 
and actually you know pseudo maps. So just a, a reminder to to when you're looking at your social media monitoring programs to spice it up and change it a little bit. Um, I think that there's not a one size fits all, but uh, certainly. Uh, as stores open uh, and continue to stay open, there is a lot of chatter around how folks can go in and uh, take things. And also, I'll leave and, and turn this over to Tony with this, is there's also quite a bit of chatter on refund policies and some locations early on or, or retailers uh, had stopped their returns or suspended returns. Well, there's a lot of chatter around who is taking refunds who has changed their policy around refunds. I know there are a couple of retailers that because they uh, had stopped taking refunds and turned it back on, had changed some of their modeling around uh, acceptance of refunds. And uh, there is chatter about that. People are talking about it and uh, talking about the ways to take advantage, just like uh, everyone here is listening to the podcast and are parts of the LPRC. Unfortunately, the folks uh, that are looking to take nefarious action in your stores are doing the same research and are having some of the conversations. Um, and uh, I'm sure some of them are listening to this podcast. And so they, um, when, we, when we think through those things, just make sure that when we go back to that rounding back to that digital risk protection, thinking of as many different points of vulnerability for you and kind of creating uh, policy and education awareness around this. I will now turn it over to Tony. Thank you very much, uh, Tom. Uh, and to wrap this up, before I turn over to Reed, let me just share some of the latest uh, industry data. And I'll start with uh, what we talked about a lot today, which is crime. So a new robbery crime report came out uh, this week from DND Daily covering the first half of the year. And so for the first half of the year, robberies are up 4% to over 2,800 in the United States. What's interesting in the second quarter of the year, they actually were down 5%, and that's interesting because that was primarily the lockdown phase. The top three sectors being hit by robberies are convenience, restaurant, and jewelry. Uh, So far this year, 38% were armed, 37% were unarmed, and 25% were burglaries. The highest number of robberies, and I don't know why, but it's Monday, that's where they happened the most. Uh, the lowest is on Friday, so taking a rest before the weekend. 51% of the it- incidents occurred between 8 p.m. and 4 a.m., and the top three states are California, Texas, and New York. The top three cities for robberies are Chicago, San Antonio, and Las Vegas for the uh, for the United States for the first half of the year. Uh, I'm actually publishing a blog summarizing all the crime trends for the first half of the year that will come out actually this week and will be made available. I'm gonna switch now to what's happening to retail in general. There was some interesting research just published by CNBC in terms of what's happening to mall and non-mall retailers. So consumers with extra money are skipping the malls and shopping at big box retailers. About halfway through the physical year, mall-based retailers have seen their earnings plunge 256%. Uh, and when you compare that, the combined earnings of off-mall companies such as uh, Home Depot, Walmart, etc., they're only down 0.6%. Uh, so mall-based retailers, and this is actually a trend that's been continuing because mall-based retailers have underperformed their off-mall competitors in 19 of the last 20 quarters. And to give you an example of some of the big retailers they just announced recently, actually in the last week, their earnings. Here's, for example, Walmart. Walmart saw same-store sales up 9.3%. E-commerce sales were up 97%. The average ticket is up, although they're having less transaction. During the pandemic, they hired more than 400,000 hourly workers. And even Sam's Club memberships are dramatically up. They're up actually 60% in the quarter. So you think that was good? You should have looked at Target. Target at a blowout quarter with same-store sales up an amazing 24%. The num- their number of transactions are actually up, and the average transaction is up even higher. Online sales grew an amazing 195%. And to give you an idea in terms of how important this thing called curbside retail is becoming, their curbside sales were up 700%. And for the first half of the year, Target gained, 100, uh, gained around 
10 million new digital customers. So think about that in six months, they gained 10 million new digital customers on their, on their platform. And then I'm gonna wrap it up with Home Depot. Again, very, very tells you what well, that we're all at home doing things. Their profit surged 25%, same store sales were up 25%. And what's interesting is it's really more to the do-it-yourself where they, so the do-it-yourself for sales, outpaced those two other professionals. Uh, but keep in mind that all this growth, it is coming at a cost and Home Depot actually pointed to some of it. They, they spend $480 million in additional compensation and then another $110 million went towards safety costs. So they are spending money to actually get some of that growth uh, because of the pandemic. So it gives you an idea in terms of how retail is going and continues to grow, especially for what were classified as the essential retailers. And with that, I'm gonna turn it over to Reed. All right, thank you so much, Tony, uh, Tom and Peter for your in incredible insights um, for all of us and uh, a, a, a lot going on, a lot's changing. Uh, I wanted to again reiterate when we talk about going back to uh, uh, Peter's discussion with us and, and you all around people and privacy and this VX or value exchange. And we heard a couple of examples of that of that value exchange. And we know if we've got an automobile, it's got a license tag. And then whoever sees us or the tag knows who we are. We've made that exchange to we can drive. So we're going to have ID, a driver's license. We're going to have tag on, on our vehicle and things like that. And we know if we're out there. So uh, all of us, all of us should be aware, should have some concerns around privacy um, and how things are done and used and guarded and so forth. Um, I, I can tell at LPRC our stance has been for a long time. Again, I'll remind uh, the listeners, um, really our primary uh, watchword here is safeguarding and we want to safeguard vulnerable people and places. And we always start and we try and work there and end in there. Um, but we know to do that properly or more be uh, better at doing that, we need situational awareness and we need the awareness to to become understanding, to make better decisions, to select the right protective options and things like that, to get more of the green shopper uh, activity that we really need and want um, and uh, the good workers, the associates, the team members that want to come there uh, and feel safe and secure while they're there in the same way that our shoppers that we'd like. Uh, and all uh, keeping in mind that what we do in asset protection, laws prevention, law enforcement is repel the red guy, the red person, the one that's there to victimize the people, victimize the places. Um, that's what they do. It's They commit theft, fraud, and or intimidation and violence. Um, so that's what it's all about is situational awareness and understanding to, to do that. And we know that uh, when it comes to AI, how does that assist decision makers? Well, AI systems can provide additional information that the user, the decision maker doesn't really have at their fingertips, isn't aware of, can't recall right there in the moment during that event. Um, AI has immediate access to much more data than the user ever could. Um, and so that's one reason that AI is so powerful now in helping physicians, radiologists, and others diagnose tumors, detect things much more quickly, accurately um, than traditional means to provide decision support information to them. We see that now with uh, uh, airline safety during flight operations uh, where AI and other of these other smart technologies are helping to do that, to provide more information more rapidly to support the decision, not make the actual decision. And that's just our second part of what we think about and try and incorporate here at LPRC in safeguarding vulnerable people in places. And that is, um, we think there are three distinct but connected components of computer vision, human identification or their action recognition. You know, we're working on that here on recognizing very harmful behaviors. Um, that can in, uh, infect, intimidate others, or, or harm them in other ways. Um, but one is this uh, positive ethical use of this decision support information and how we do that. But it's, again, to provide us a heads up, um, you know, there's this, uh, some situational awareness about something and maybe start to inform so we have more understanding about what we need to do or what's happening before our eyes or uh, that we need to at least deal with. 
Um, so the model accuracy is important um, and that training data sets need to incorporate uh, all the people that need to be recognized or should be contrasted. Um, so that's why you see model accuracy continues to improve and that uh, the, inc the data sets are continuing to be expanded and improved in the same way that they help us make better prognostications uh, about what's happening because uh, the right behaviors or the right individual that's a potential threat to somebody, one of our people, um, is uh, probably recognized. But again, it goes to the second part, and that is solely the, the AI, the models, the algorithms are there to provide support information. They don't make any actual decisions, um, but rather they inform the decision maker, again, maybe providing them information they didn't have or couldn't recall in the moment. Um, uh, or would never have. And so um, that's what it's about. The manager then has to decide to collect other information to maybe validate in the way that when I started out as a store detective is at 18 years of age that I got a Polaroid photo of this person. Uh, that photo says it's this person. I'm having to validate, look, maybe ask somebody else, uh, things like that. Then the manager or whoever, the decision maker has to decide what possible responses do I have? Ignore it. Um, call for help, render pup, you know, good customer service or whatever is indicated here, uh, evacuate the building, do whatever might be there if we've got a threat. Um, but what are their responses? Um, and then the manager then decides whether to initiate one of those responses. Uh, and then finally, the uh, AI just um, requires um, the use of it should have ongoing training would be the next point. So again, uh, it's we want to have a positive ethical use uh, logic model in place, um, like safeguarding vulnerable people in places or better serving the green shopper or a better experience for the employee, um, that the accuracy continues to improve and that we're trying continuously to do that by including the right targets and contrasts, uh, behaviors or objects and things like that, that we're using it totally as an information support tool. Uh, and then the third part or the next big part that we think is different is now the data privacy. That's a separate issue, but yet is, it is of course, connected. Um, but the personal images of the known offenders or other threats, uh, objects like a handgun or a, a knife, things like that, that we might be using AR to try and safeguard people, um, that that data set is safeguarded and not as corruptible within the limits of current capability, you know, data protection capability. So these things are all linked. They're all important in our opinion. Um, but it's just like in medicine, we don't not do something um, that has uh, good efficacy um, and supports that decision-making process. Um, we try and find ways to do it better, be more accurate, um, and to safeguard uh, the data as much as we're trying to safeguard uh, the individual. So uh, I'll stop there and just say that uh, it's a critical issue. Um, since the dawn of man, uh, people have conducted surveillance in one way or another, looking for uh, campfire smoke to whatever, trying to recognize people. It's human nature to want to understand what's going on around us, that situational understanding. So um, with no further ado, I want to thank again, Peter, uh, Tony, Tom, uh, Kevin Tran, our producer. Uh, I want to thank all of you all and uh, hope everybody stays safe. Contact us again at your convenience at lpresearch.org. Uh, we'd love to talk to you or at operations at lpresearch.org. Stay safe. Thanks for listening to the Crime Science Podcast presented by the Loss Prevention Research Council and sponsored by Bosch Security. If you enjoyed today's episode, you can find more crime science episodes and valuable information at lpresearch.org. The content provided in the Crime Science Podcast is for informational purposes only and is not a substitute for legal, financial, or other advice. Views expressed by guests of the Crime Science Podcast are those of the authors and do not reflect the opinions or positions of the Loss Prevention Research Council.